And once he starts on a journey and uh, runs across his father who sees he's a stranger and challenges him, uh, feeling that there's something suspicious about him, and forces a fight on the young man. And he feels like Well, as the story continues, Oedipus, who's a tremendous young warrior, is made the king by the people of that country. And they marry him off to his own home. And he has two daughters. And then, of course, comes the time when things come about. He's married his own home. And, of course, what's happening is the furies are speaking of that now he's innocent. He never will do done any wrong. You see how the story stacks the deck. Here's the greatest tragedy of Greece, which reveals their religious outlook. For Ephesus has never done anything wrong. He's been a very good king. He didn't willfully kill the old king. The old king attacked him. He tried to avoid it. But no, the Furies are now taking it out on his kingdom. That's how he starts the quest. Why are these terrible things happening to He's trying to rule wisely, and all kinds of horrible things are happening. There must be some evil somewhere. Of all again, but he didn't mean to do anything wrong. So to quieten the furies and to relieve his country, he blinds himself and begins wandering everywhere, hoping that finally the furies will leave him in peace. The two daughters leading him, now a blind beggar as he goes to place At the moment when he finds out what has happened, and says, Oh, oh, all brought to pass, all truth. Thou life may I now look my last on thee, I who have been found a cursed in birth, a cursed in wedlock, a cursed in the shedding of blood. And the chorus, the Greek chorus, comments, he rushes into the palace to blind himself so that the furies will stop destroying his life. And then knows no more king than the homeless beggar. Alas, ye generations of men, how mere a shadow do I count your likeness. Where, where is the mortal who wins more happiness than just the steamy and after the semblance of falling away? Thine is a fate that warns me, thine of thine unhappiness. Recall no earthly sweet creature blessed. And there you have the priest. All this business about them being happy pagans and how happy the Greek outlook was is nonsense. There you have the Greek outlook. Call no creature blessed. No one is happy. Live it up. You're going to be dead soon. Whether you do right or wrong, life is set again. The last words of Oedipus, therefore the cross.
therefore, while our eyes wait to see the destined final day, we must call no one happy with a mortal race till he has crossed life's border free from pain. So it goes with a poor man until he finds deliverance finally in death, and then his poor girl carry on with her. This is tragedy. This is why tragedy is not Christian. It's anti-Christian. Because it says the universe is stacked against man. That whatever God may exist is radically perverse. So that he picks someone like Oedipus, who is especially innocent, and brings him about to a position where he's involved in all kinds of horrible things through no fault of his, and then enjoys blinding him, driving him as a suffering beggar all over the face of the earth until he does. Tragedy implies a hostile universe which is against man. It does not see man as sinner, but as victim. The universe is neither God created nor God ruled. Significantly, in the modern world, tragedy is regarded the beginning of Shakespeare as the great article. And today, 90% of what you get on television and in the movies and in novels is tragedy. If you think it's not religious, you're kidding yourself. It's the most poisonous, the most venomous kind of anti-Christian religion. It's giving us something that is radically, totally stacked against any view that sees God behind the That says, man is not a sinner, man is a victim. And therefore, what's the use of it? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Thus the Greek picture is something no Christian can accept, but it is the picture with which we are surrounded day and night. Virtually every program represents a militant anti-Christian religion crusading in purpose. Our time is limited, but I want to continue now with the next chapter, chapter 7, on our Lord Jesus Christ and the beginning of Christianity. Again, contrasting the basic religious premise behind the history so that we can see First, the movement of events in the text as we read week by week, and then something of the meaning, the religious meaning of these movements. Now, as against all these pagan views, and especially as against the Greek view, we see in Scripture God as the Creator. And as against the ultimate perversity of the universe, we have our Lord declaring very early in his ministry in Matthew 10, verses 25 through 34, that 
total government of God. Now, as Pharaoh falls, as your Father in heaven knows, if a house be divided against itself, it cannot stand. Who is the master of the house? Not you. Fear them not, therefore. Why? Because of the absolute government of God. And in that passage, what our Lord is saying is that the house, the universe, is under God, not under Satan. The universe is not ultimately perverse, as tragedy would have it. It is under God. Now remember, when he was writing, Greek was the second language which every Hebrew, every Jew spoke. Greek culture was very powerful in the land. Greek gymnasiums were all over Jerusalem. And the Sadducees were extensively influenced by Greek thinking. Every person in the land had a second name which was Greek. So when you read the New Testament, when you read the words of our Lord, remember, this was the environment. This was the kind of thing he was talking against. The intellectuals around him, the educated people had read of Aeschylus and Sophocles, Euripides. They had grown up in that world. Declared the house, the universe is under God, not under her field divine. Fear them not, therefore. All things shall be revealed, he said. All shall be judged, all shall be punished, or rewarded. There is nothing hidden shall not be found out. The universe is absolutely governed by God to the very hairs of our head the fall of every parent. God's government and care are good. He who confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father in heaven. Confess me therefore in battle against the enemy, and I shall confess you before God. Think not I have come to bring peace, and come to bring not I have come not to unite good and evil in Persian fashion or in pagan Greek fashion, but to divide and to destroy evil, to bring about a separation. Summon man to regeneration and then to build afresh all things in terms of my word. Now, looking back on what we see in the pagan civilizations we studied last week and tonight, then study just these words of our Lord in Matthew 10, 25 through 34. See the direction of his ministry, the direction of his word, did you see why a knowledge of history so that we can see the issues as our Lord presented them against the whole 
chalkboard of history. The battle as it's again lining up. Because again we have the tragic view of life of ancient Greece. Again we have the Persian view tolerate both good and evil. Again we have the Assyrian, Babylonian, Egyptian view of chaos as the source of regeneration. And we must therefore again find our personal and societal regeneration in Jesus Christ. All things must be made new in terms of his work. So that on this battlefield of history, we hope we shall see in the weeks ahead progressively more and more clearly and sharply the nature of the battle, the work for us, and the direction. Let us bow our heads in prayer before we have the question period. Our Lord and our God, we thank Thee that all things begin and end in Thee. Thou art He who didst make all things and didst ordain and determine their end. We thank Thee, therefore, that in this confidence we can face the battle of the ages, knowing that we are more than conquerors. Are there any questions now? Yes. When you were talking about the, the movement of people, the scattering of people, don't we have that the little thing going on today in Park Plains, New York, the center of it? Yes. Uh, in my book, Politics of Guilt and Pity, I have a chapter on the UN and religious dream in which I speak of their ideas of mass movement of peoples in Babylonian fashion and Assyrian fashion. Yes. Mr. Gordon of the 50-year-old company is financing according to uh, uh, some printed material that I have from a magazine. He is financing uh, this kind of uh, yes. migration? Yes. Well, I would say the whole has disappeared from the Tootsie Roll and gone into Mr. Gordon's head. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, page 25, Yes, uh, uh, Belshazzar was uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, grandfather, but since, uh, grandson, yes, Nebuchadnezzar was the grandfather of Belshazzar. Now, Belshazzar was made the son of uh, Nebuchadnezzar and vice king under Nabonidus because he was quite young when his father uh, uh, well when his grandfather died Belshazzar was too young 
So they made his father, even though he was not the son of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king. And then they made the young king the second king, the vice king, or vice president in our term. So Nabonidus uh, was also made an adopted son, as it were, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. So strictly, he was both grandson and legal son. Yes. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, probably thought he was being realistic. What is realism? What realism is is determined by your faith. You can go back through the centuries and you find writers are always claiming to be realistic in terms of their faith. So the realism that you find in the modern novel and the modern movie and the modern television uh, series is always a realism in terms of their religious faith, which is a belief in tragedy. The deck is stacked against them. This is their faith. There's a bitterness against the universe. Things weren't made right. And the only hope is that man can remake everything. But you get a steady diet of tragedy to tell you what a mess God has made of the universe. In an ugly world, there's no meaning, no God, no purpose behind it. So, it isn't realism. How much of uh, the kind of... Uh, thing that you see on these tragic uh, television programs that you ever seen in real life. You see, it, it, everything is uh, bleak and black, and the poor innocent uh, man is always the victim, never the sinner. So, it's realism in terms of their religion. Yes. The Congress movement? Yes. Well, of course, there's no such thing as the Congress movement today. Because, first of all, the Congress movement in the Bible, we are told, is something whereby they spoke a specific language. And people uh, who were foreigners understood that, that this was a gift in the apostolic age whereby they communicated with people and carried the gospel to them. There is no record today of any speaking in tongues. Again and again these tongue meetings have been taped. No one has ever spoken in tongues. What they do is to get hysterical and they repeat one or two syllables over and over and over again hysterically. As I say, this has been taped, and they uh, put down in black and white what they repeated, two or three syllables, uh, over and over again. It may be uh, da 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 or abadaba, 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 something like that. Nonsense. Now, that's not speaking in tongues. Moreover, in ancient times, you had that kind of thing, which is glossalia, this hysterical babbling of syllables pagan religion. 
You had it in the jungles of Africa. The first time tongues came in, about the 3rd or 4th century, it came into Christianity from Phrygia, from a pagan group. The modern tongues movement, or Pentecostalism, began with Negroes, uh, I believe it was in uh, Azusa or Covina. This is where it began, among Negroes. And it's basically a pagan thing. You can find this tongues movement among, as I say, the tribes. You can find it among Hindus. You can find it among the uh, American Indians in the old days. You can find it among the Buddhists. It is pagan. It's not speaking in a language. Yes. And you may be right. I knew it was here in Southern California, and in, in a Negro uh, group. Well, I think there was a group that brought it to that. Uh, I'll have to check, but it was originally an all-Negro group, and then an integrated group caught on to it and became the center of its propagation. So probably this upper room group was the group that became the propagating point. But the first manifestation was among Negroes, an all-Negro group. Yes. Yes, I, yes, they claim this, but again and again, people pass on and take these meetings. When they have claimed that they were speaking other languages, and it's never been anything but this babble of silver. Yes. Right. So, here is a, a case where it has been extensively subjected to investigation and taping, a great deal of taping. All across the country you had scholars taping. Now one uh, man, not that I particularly care for the man, but he has done some real research here, is Dr. Wellmer, who is OEC minister and also professor at UCLA. And he has done extensive taping here. And, uh, there's never been even a hint of anything of a word in any of them, just a re repetition of them. Uh, so. Yes. 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 Well, of course, they don't speak in tongues, that's my point. It's never been proven, and it's been subjected to intensive investigation. And second, instead of having the Holy Spirit, most Pentecostal groups have a very low moral caliber. Very low moral caliber. Yes. Yes, uh, and uh, this is notorious. Um, anyone who has very close contact with those groups, and I know that uh, Ruby Walker has, 
can vouch for their very low moral character, which appears even in the clergy. Sound the shenanigans? Well, some of them do and some don't. It depends on the group. That's the way some feel, but not all. But there are many who do feel that way, yes. Yeah. Right, that's true. And they claim that they can interpret and they get up and give something that is ostensibly the message. But all of this, as I say, has been taped. So that we do have a great deal of documentation at this point concerning the tongue movement and uh, they have not been able to verify a single claim concerning the gospel. And uh, their only answer is to say that you either don't have the Holy Spirit or uh, you refuse to uh, submit to it yourself. In other words, uh, it isn't the objective evidence. You have to experience it yourself and then you'll know. Yes. Well, you prove that against that is that the original tongue speaking Historical Atlas of the World, and 
the number in their paperback list is number 249. Barnes & Noble, the publisher. Now, what this does is to begin
uh, knowledge of uh, 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 longitude and latitude both, which they couldn't compute again until the 18th century. It's Hapgood, Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings. And Hapgood is not a fly by night. He was co-author of uh, an important work with uh, Einstein. And he began this study of a particular map at the request of the Pentagon. When they found uh, maps before Columbus's day, which clearly showed North and South America very accurately drawn and the Arctic area, with the lakes and all, which are now under ice in the Arctic area. Yes. Right. Exactly. Yes. They, they went back to them because they were non-Christians, they were humanists, and as humanists they exalted them, and they called the intervening period the Dark Ages. Later they called only a short part of it the Dark Ages, and the rest of the medieval period, the middle part, the kind you kind of jump over. So they forgot everything that was learned in that time. There are, uh, they actually had anesthetics during the medieval period, which was forgotten until it was rediscovered in this country. We really don't know uh, a great deal of our history. Of course, we don't have time to go into all of that. But a great deal of man's knowledge was lost because he turned his back on the Christian era and said, nothing connected with that can be any good. His medical practice went downhill. His knowledge of the world went downhill because he wasn't going to learn anything from a Christian. Yes. Would you explain the, the date uh, of the birth of our Lord as being uh, between 6 and 4 B.C.? Well, I don't know that I have the confidence to do it because I don't think anyone really knows. But there are some scholars, a great many, who believe that uh, when, oh, a few centuries later, when the Christians triumphed, they began to create a Christian calendar that they miscalculated by four or six years in uh, setting the beginning of the Christian era, because what they did was to date everything after Christ and before Christ from the year of his birth. So they began this uh, after Rothschild, and uh, well, perhaps a little before that, they had begun to move in that direction of a Christian calendar. Well, our time is up. Now we shall continue next week with. Our study of the rise and fall of Rome, the Republic and the Empire, chapters 8 to 9, and uh, chapter 10, the early church confronts the world. We may get started on Byzantium, although I'm not sure. But try to get through chapter 11 if you can, but certainly through chapter 10. And with that, I believe we are adjourned. Now, let me see. Is it two weeks from tonight that is the 
Thanksgiving uh, week? Three weeks. All right, and we're not meeting that week. No. Okay, so we will be meeting next week and the week after, but not the week of Thanksgiving.